Good morning. My name is Dave. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. Ray is on vacation. Uh, and so, welcome. If you don't know who I am, welcome. Uh, we are in a series uh, for the last couple of weeks called Moonwalking with God, where we are looking backwards. We are uh, fine-tuning the art of remembering. Uh, we're remembering who God is and what he has done. Uh, by repeating, revisiting, retelling, and reflecting on Old Testament stories. Stories that are too good and too important to ignore or forget. We look back because it helps us see the future with greater clarity. We learn lessons from these stories. And this morning we're going to look back at a pretty famous Old Testament story. One that has been a favorite of mine since I was a kid, really. And in many ways, it, has, it is a story that has shaped me uh, into hopefully the guy that I am today. And it's a story that I was taught probably incorrectly. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's out of Daniel chapter 6. And always when this story is taught, it's about the lion's den. Well, this morning, I'm going to tell you how the story ends, but we're not really going to focus on what happens in the lion's den. We're going to happen. We're going to focus on what happens right in front of that. So if you brought your Bible, open it to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of the chair Bibles that are there in front of you. If you're new to opening the Bible, just take it to the middle and start thumbing to the right. You'll eventually hit Daniel. It's on page 881 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. The book of Daniel is located among other books called the prophetic books. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all Old Testament prophets. Daniel was one of those Old Testament prophets, but he was a part-time prophet. He wasn't full-time. He had a full-time, non-churchy, non-Christian job. And he did a little moonlighting as a prophet on the side. Old Testament prophets were these folks who were to speak on behalf of God. They were given a clearly defined message from God to a person, a specific person or a group of people. And their job was to be the mouthpiece of God to those people. And as a mouthpiece or a spokesperson for God, the prophet's primary duty was to speak forth God's message to God's people in context. There was a little bit of prophecy in the sense of seeing the future, but most of it was about explaining, extolling, elaborating on that which what God was doing already among his people. And Daniel was one of those people. Daniel was born in Jerusalem. He was born into royalty. When Daniel was a teenager, a king came and conquered Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar comes, conquers Jerusalem. And as a part of that conquering, he says, I need to bring some of the royalty with me. So Daniel and a bunch of his friends got caught up in that and were brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's service. And as a part of that, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to train you up for three years. I'm going to teach you my ways on how to do things. And as a part of that, you need to eat the food from my table. Which under normal normal circumstances, we would have looked at that and said, man, that's fantastic. That's going to be great food. But not Daniel. 
Daniel views that as a potential derailing of his relationship with God because this was unclean food. And so Daniel does something quite remarkable in chapter 1, verse 8. Look at it with me. But Daniel, now remember, Daniel's a teenager at this moment. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. What he does is he says, I can't eat this food. So he goes to the guy in charge of him and says, I can't eat this food. And that guard, who was probably a little apprehensive about the idea of letting Daniel waste away, says, no, you got to eat the food. And Daniel says, no, I'm not going to eat the food. And so Daniel bargains with him to say, okay, listen, just serve me water, fruits and vegetables, and let's see what happens. So he does that. And Daniel grows and gets stronger and becomes more elite than the others around him are eating from the food from the king's table. And so word gets around early on that Daniel has distinguished himself from the others, that he's set apart, that he's different. And because of his wisdom and his deep commitment for God, he stood out. He was living his faith out loud in a consistent way. And at the same time, giving all the honor and the glory and the praise to God. And so time goes on, and in Nebuchadnezzar's second year of rule, he has a bad dream. And he wants to understand the dream, so he calls all the wise people in the land to come and tell him, not only tell him what he dreamed, but tell him what his dream was about. And none of them could do it. Guy after guy, person after person comes in, cannot do it. So he says, fine, I'm going to kill you all. That's the kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was. I'm going to kill you all. So he issues a decree, and Daniel, who's considered a wise person in the mix, starts to get a little nervous. And rather than flip out, he does something pretty unique. He asks God for mercy. He prays. He gets on his hands and knees and says, God, grant me mercy. And God provided that mercy. And he gives Daniel the opportunity to come before Nebuchadnezzar and tell him about his dream. And once again, successfully completing a task gives all the honor and the glory to God. And after interpreting the dream correctly for Nebuchadnezzar, the king promoted Daniel to a senior position. And he, and he promotes, and Daniel, as a result, promotes three of his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You heard of those guys? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cut from the same cloth as Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar gets pretty full of himself and says, I'm going to make this giant idol of myself and I want everyone to bow down to that. Well, that was a problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, no, we're not doing that. So Nebuchadnezzar got irritated with that and threw him into the furnace to burn him up. Maybe you know that story. God shows up in the middle of that furnace and saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And once again... These men come out of the furnace and give honor and glory to God. They come out unscathed. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's response in chapter 3, verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him 
and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, not a believer in God, a worshiper of idols, says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all serving in Nebuchadnezzar's home. Daniel has such an impact on Nebuchadnezzar that the king eventually published a personal testimony to the entire kingdom, recognizing the God of the Jews as the one and only true God. So Daniel is having significant impact in the home of Nebuchadnezzar. And so years go by, Babylon falls, Nebuchadnezzar's out, new king is on his way in, and that's where we pick up Daniel's story. So turn to chapter 5, the last verse, verse 31. Verse 30 says this, That very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, this is not a small little transition. This is a whole new way of life. One king out, one set of rules out, one culture out. Overnight, you wake up, it's a new day. This guy, Darius, who was really a king, but he was probably appointed by another king, So he's kind of like the king of this particular region does something extraordinary. He recognizes Daniel and he says, okay, Daniel, I want you to be in charge of the whole thing. Now, Daniel's not a teenager anymore. Daniel's pushing 90 at this point in the story. And it's a new day. It's a new job, it's a new boss, it's a new staff, there's new procedures, there's new culture. And Daniel's in charge. And I don't know how you would respond to that situation, and I'm not sure how I would respond to that situation, but it probably isn't the way Daniel is referred to in verse 3 of chapter 6. Look at that. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps. So these were guys that were like governors that were put in charge and Daniel's their boss. Uh, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Daniel established himself as a highly competent man. The words in verse 3 distinguished himself literally translate in the Greek to mean to show oneself prominent. Daniel was a man who did great work. In fact, he did it decidedly better than anyone else. And even in the midst of a hostile work environment with a crazy boss, he did his job well. I mean, think about it. All of his bosses have been a little crazy. And certainly none of his bosses believed in the things that Daniel believed in. And yet he continually, consistently did great work. And what's the end result for all of his bosses? They ultimately find God because of their admiration and respect for Daniel. He didn't complain. 
He didn't isolate himself. He didn't boycott anybody. He didn't sue anybody. He did his job and he did it well. And as a result, pointed glory to God. At this moment in chapter six, he's at the top of his game. God had moved him into multiple positions and fully engaged his God-given core competencies. But there's more here. Not only was Daniel a guy who did great work, but he was also a man of great character. The verse uses the phrase exceptional qualities to describe this intense level of character that Daniel possessed. He was a godly man. Qualities like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control described Daniel's life. Somehow, in our current culture, these characteristics have, we perceive them in the workplace anyway, to make us weak. But for Daniel, they put him in a position of great power and influence and opportunity to point people to God. His character was strong. When I was uh, younger, a number of years ago, I had a friend, co-worker, and I was in a not particularly happy spot in my career. I, I didn't really like what I was doing. I was frustrated. I was overworked. I was irritable. And I was on the phone with the co-worker, and he said something that irritated me even more. And I hung up the phone, and I walked into my house, and Margie was there, my wife, and I just started complaining And I went off on this individual and I just, how miserable he was and how horrible this place is and what am I doing here? And I'm ranting and raving for like 10 minutes. And I sort of start to wind down and my phone rings. And it's my friend. And he says, listen, you should probably make sure your phone is hung up when you start to complain about me. I was devastated. I was mortified. I had, there's no comeback from that. You can't say. Just joking. <laughs> that doesn't work. And he hung up and I hung up and hours went by and I perseverated on the issue and I prayed over the issue and finally there was no other option. I just went to his house and I said, I'm sorry, I need your forgiveness. I didn't mean those things. I didn't didn't intend for anyone to hear those things. They weren't true. They were just based on my emotion of the moment. But I ran the risk of altering that friend's perception of God because of my actions. I just returned from El Salvador with a group of people from this church where we, we dug a well. And in, in El Salvador is a, is a priest, was a priest. His name is Romero, Oscar Romero. He's a legend in El Salvador. His picture is painted on the sides of churches. And in San Salvador, in the capital, there's a huge cathedral that's dedicated to him. Because over the course of his career, he stayed consistent and faithful and true to his core values. And when the government oppressed the poor, he stood up for the poor. And while standing in church, delivering a message like this, someone came in and shot him and killed him. And now, to this day, people talk about Romero. Remember 
Romero because his life stood for something that was consistent. Daniel was a great worker, a man of strong character. So the, uh, his, the other co-workers, Daniel's other co-workers, set out to try to find something wrong. They're jealous of his new position. They try to find something wrong with him, and they can't. They conduct a huge investigation. They figured, this guy's been in politics this long. Surely there's something going wrong. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. Nothing. Couldn't find anything to cause him shame. So they create a plan to trap him. And that trap is totally dependent upon his character to succeed. They go to the king and they say, King, listen, we think that you are the greatest king ever. And we think you should make a decree, a law, that says that no one anywhere should pray to anything or anybody but you for 30 days. I mean, what king's going to go, no, that's not, that doesn't sound like very much fun. No. And so he gets trapped into that and he signs it. And because in Persian law, uh, the king is under the law, he signs this bill and he has no ability to change it. So he traps. And so Daniel is now faced with another dilemma. He can't pray to God. If he does, he's going to die. So Daniel being Daniel does something I don't know that you and I would do. Upon hearing about this new decree, he walked home, walked up the stairs to his top floor, got in front of the windows, pointed his body towards Jerusalem and got on his knees and prayed. I don't know about you, but I think I would have at least drawn the curtains. But not Daniel. Daniel prays openly, out loud, and look at, what the, look at what the text says. In, in uh, chapter 6, verse 10, it says this. Now then, Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. The whole plan depended on Daniel being consistent to his faith. And he didn't disappoint. This moment, not in the lion's den, this moment is the apex of Daniel's life. This decision, everything that's happened from the, the denying of the food at the king's table until now has prepared him for this decision. And I personally think this is the place where most of us would experience a crisis of conscience. But Daniel does just as he had done before. I mean, no one would have blamed him if he had closed his eyes. I mean, left his eyes open when he prayed or closed the curtains or stopped praying for a little while or prayed at a different time. But he didn't do any of that. I wonder how many of us, how many times in our own life have we chosen because of justifiable reasons to put our relationship with God in the closet? I mean, Daniel had options. There's lots he could have done. Would God really have been disappointed with him after this incredible life, 90 years of faithful service? But for Daniel, he could not, would not do anything to compromise his relationship with God, regardless of the consequences. Our response to hostility, to people who disagree with us, to oppressive environments more often than not, is to adjust. 
Maybe a simple adjustment or maybe a drastic adjustment. But in an effort to keep peace, avoid conflict or whatever else we call it, we camouflage our faith. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that we've been so conditioned by the world to protect ourselves that we preemptively closet our faith by being around people who will just simply agree with us. We put ourselves in a bubble. And what happens next? Most of us know. Darius is caught in his own bad decision. He grieves that decision, not because he's irritated with Daniel, but because he loves Daniel. But he's caught in this situation, so he's off to the lion's den with Daniel. And the scriptures tell us that he mourned that moment, that he grieved that moment, that he was anxious. In fact, he didn't sleep that night. And so they put Daniel in the lion's den and they rolled the stone over the entrance and they sealed it and they waited. And Darius says something in verse 16 that's pretty significant about sort of telling about Daniel's impact into Darius' life. He says this, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Darius went home and Daniel sat in the lion's den. Darius didn't sleep, but I imagine Daniel did. In fact, I imagine Daniel slept pretty well. Because he knew God was with him. So the next day comes, Darius runs to the stone and they remove the stone and Darius screams at the top of his lungs, Daniel, are you in there? Are you okay? Come out. And Daniel does just that, unscathed, walks out of the lion's den, no problems. So that's Daniel's story. And if we're to look back on these stories in this series and learn something, what can we learn from Daniel's life? I mean, there's the big issue of Daniel stepped out in faith and God protected him. Yes, that's part of it. But there's a couple other things that I want to point out. Number one is this. Daniel did good work. We should do good work. We should do good work. We should be good employees at our jobs. We should be good neighbors. Daniel worked for oppressive, unbelieving bosses, but he rose in their favor. He worked for decades in environments that were hostile to his faith. And yet he was a good employee. He did his job well. If in this room you receive a paycheck from somebody else other than yourself, or that is your aspiration to do so, it is incumbent upon us to be the best employees we can be. This means working with integrity as it relates to our time and our attitude and our ethics. You may say to me, but you don't know my boss. You're right, I don't. But I don't think that changes the story. There are a few things in life that we can do to discredit our relationship with God more than being bad employees or bad neighbors. Dads in the room, let me speak to you for a second. Be a good dad. There are too many bad dads in the world. And the world is watching you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And and the world is saying, what will they do? How will they respond? 
And if you're cheating on your boss, if you're taking stuff from your employer, if you're being a bad neighbor, and if you're not being a good dad, the world looks at that and says, then their God is weak. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. Daniel garnered respect because he was a good employee and their respect drew these great, powerful men to God. Number two, be consistent with your faith. If Daniel was anything, he was a consistent, integrity-filled believer. And, And a consistent faith is a powerful instrument in God's hands. It can change the world. Every one of us in this room is a sinner and has made mistakes. We haven't always lived a life marked by integrity. But I'm telling you, it's not too late. Today, you can start living a life of consistent faith. A consistent faith that is lived out loud. And I don't mean in an obnoxious, annoying sort of, uh, there's those Christians again. I mean, live your life in a way that draws honor and respect and praise to God. Live it in your workplace. Live it in your home. Live it in your neighborhood. Live it in your school. Don't be afraid to put it out there. Don't be weird about it, but don't be afraid to put it out there. Consistency breeds authenticity. And authenticity changes people for God. Number three, develop great character. Daniel was a man of great character. And I think, to be honest with you, as I told you in the early, uh, when I first started, that this story has captured my heart and has impacted me because I wanted, as a, even as a youngster, to be a man that had that level of integrity, that level of character. And I tell you, as most of you have, we have seasons of great character and seasons of not so great character. And my life has been up and down just like your life. But my heart, my passion is to be a man of character. And people know what I stand for and when I stand for it. And when I say I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there. Against all the orders of the king, Daniel, at the risk of death, did what he'd always done, which was to pray to his God. He didn't call anybody, ask for their opinion. He didn't in any way tell his servants, don't let anybody disturb me. He went to the open window as he had always done. And he prayed. And as a result, a king and potentially a kingdom found their way to God. So this morning, I'm not asking for perfection. God's not asking for perfection. What Daniel's life represents is a daily step-by-step-by-step commitment to him. And it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But what I know it means for me is that I'm going to be a guy who's the best employee I can be, the best neighbor I can be, and the best dad I can be. And I'm going to be a person that does does everything he can to, to live his faith in oppressive situations and good situations as consistently as possible. And I'm going to garner in myself character. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to follow God in such a way that people look at me and say, there's a man of character. Father, we, uh, we don't always know how to do that. But we do know that you equip us with everything we need to make that happen.
So God, even in this moment, the evil one is in our heads saying, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. But God, wash that away. Remind us that we are set free, that we are saved by the work your son did on the cross. And as a result, we can be these things. That we would be bold. And we would bring honor and glory to you with everything that we say and everything that we do. It's your name we pray. Amen.